May it please the court. My name is Austin Easley. I represent the Bradshaw Family Trust, uh, the appellant herein, which is a, was a small office supply company in a small town in eastern Arkansas. This case involves the total loss of an insured building, and I know your honors are, have, are familiar with the facts, the total loss of an insured building. Uh, the, the timeline is particularly important for the analysis here. Uh, my client was wrapping up the business. His parents were, uh, the parents, the, the folks that were operating the business were 89 years old, thereabout. Um, and the policy, about the time they were going to wrap up the business, the policy was going to renew in June 2020. So the idea was, we don't need that much insurance. We're closing down the business. So he asked his insurance agent, let's uh, um, uh, reduce the coverage. And that's kind of how all this started. The whole conversation began with, we don't need this much coverage once we close our business, once we shut down our business, once we vacate the building, which everybody knows changes the loss. The entirety of the district court's order and the appellee's motion hinges on the nature and the scope of the insurance agent's authority, Cole Scandendor's authority with Ott Insurance. In Arkansas, this is very clearly a question of fact for the jury to determine. Quoting from Rowan versus Gastroenterology Associates, as well as Forest Park Canning versus Kohler, and this is in our brief. In an unbroken line of opinions, we have consistently held that the question of agency and the extent of its power and authority is always a question of fact. Well, what's the disputed fact here? That's what matters for grant of summary judgment. <coughs> what fact is in dispute as that to, would have prevented the district court from being able to resolve this on summary judgment? As to the authority issue, uh, Your Honor, or yeah. just as any issue? Well, as to the basis of the court's decision. Um, there are a number of disputed facts. Um, first, as to the agency issue, Nowhere, and, and if you look in the record, I'm sure the court has, there's a number of text messages that kind of delineate the timeline. And nowhere um, in the text chain outside of that PDF that my client couldn't open does it say we want to reduce the coverage prior to the renewal date. So there's a question of fact as to what authority the agent had to, to bind the insured to change the policy uh, in April at that time. There are, all, there are other facts. I, I can go down the list if you're on the line. Well, as, as I read the briefing, there was email exchanges, basically a directive to the agent to reduce the uh, coverage. There was an initial request to take it down to 250 that was uh, discussed, and no, that's let's let's at least have 450, and it was agreed that 450 would be requested. Uh, or that it would be adjusted uh, down to 450. And then, as I understand it, the remaining premium for the period was reduced uh, such that the next payment that would be made towards the satisfaction of the period premium was a reduced payment that uh, was, would be the completion of a payment for the reduced amount of insurance requested. So that at that time, a reasonable person would understand, I'm paying for less insurance than I used to have. I have, I have, I have entered into an agreement 
based on my recommend, based on my request to reduce my insurance coverage, I'm now paying for reduced insurance coverage. Uh, a document comes, and apparently it's disputed as to whether or not that document could or was read, uh, indicating that the in, in, that the insurance had had actually uh, gone into effect at the reduced uh, coverage. But at least there was that much of uh, a record of exchange between the insured and uh, uh, between the agent and the insured. So it, uh, help me there to understand what's in dispute uh, about that. A couple of things, Your Honor. Um, and, and I've tried to write down because you, you address a number of things there that I think we need to discuss. Uh, first, um, it was a text exchange, not an email exchange, um, which is, may sound like semantics and, and a minor issue, but you, you, most folks, particularly folks my father's age, uh, can't open uh, documents on text as easily as they can say an email. That's one issue. And, and I think it's undisputed or uh, at the very less disputed that my client was able to open or did open uh, the PDF that is, and I think this is also another important point, a quote letter not an endorsement. A quote letter does not change the policy. The endorsement to the insurance policy changes the policy. We would not have an issue here, and there would not be the ambiguity of when is this change taking place and what is the change if an endorsement was issued and delivered to the insurer. The endorsement would say the policy has been changed. But that, but that's not a that's not a question of fact. I mean that. You know, facts or who, what, when, where. Uh, again, we have the text messages. What's what's there for a trier of fact to choose between? A, a few things. Uh, first, the endorsement was never delivered to the insurer. The endorsement but that, was never. That's that. Is only required in a unilateral change, right? What we have here is, an, is a change by agreement. Yeah, I, I understand in the court's referencing Arkansas Code Annotated um, 23. I, I don't have the quote right here in front of me, but the, uh, the, Your Honor is correct that that is not required unless it's at the request of the insured. The issue here is did the insured request that this change be made immediately? And I think the record is very clear that that's disputed. The insured did not ask that the policy change take effect immediately. And I think that's also um, a hot... I'm but sorry. if Shannon Dorr is his agent, then his problem is with his agent, right? If his agent miscommunicated his intentions... That's a very good point, Your Honor. To that point, the issue of the scope and authority of that agency is a question of fact, and it's not proper to be decided at the summary judgment phase by, by the district court. If there is, I think, as the other judges are suggesting, if there is a factual dispute, then that needs to be decided by a jury. So what is the factual dispute regarding the scope of agency? The insured never told the agent to change the policy before the renewal. Yeah, that's not the scope, I don't think. Um... To, you know, if, if he is my full agent and 
he misunderstands or deliberately doesn't follow my directions, my problem is with the agent, not not the company that the agent miscommunicated with. Let me see if I can do a better job. Okay. He, the agent had no actual authority to make that change. The district court found that, and we disagree. The district court had no actual authority to make the change prior to the neural date. Okay, and I think the question is, what is the factual dispute with respect to the actual authority? I mean, does the agent testify, I had full authority, and, and your client testifies, well, he, he only had authority to... to uh, buy me insurance in the first place and not to make any changes. I mean, is there some factual dispute there? As as to what the agent did or what the agent was also authorized to do? Author, we're, talk, we're talking about authority now. The agent was not authorized to make that change. Says says who? Where's the where's the factual dispute? Uh, I understand your question. Okay. Where, in the, where in the record does uh, is there a dispute as to what the agent was authorized to do? Correct. It is clear, and it's been testified from the claims adjuster, Michael Deffenbaugh, um, and it's been testified by my client, that my client has consistently held from before and after the claim that he did not want the policy to change until the business was sold uh, and until it became vacant. Um, Scanador was forced to admit this in deposition. Um, he waffles around a little bit in his deposition, but what he ends up saying is the conversation began and never changed, that policy change was to take effect um, at, at renewal. Some other issues that I think are Counsel, important. what's the effect of the uh, reduction in premium uh, interchange? Thank you. Um, thank you for that question. That's the, the next point I was going to address. Um, a couple of things that are very important about that. Nowhere in the policy does it authorize the insurance company to um, hold on to money uh, and then at, thereafter um, remit an overpayment. It does allow that in the endorsement, but that is not something the insured agreed to. The insured never uh, said, hey, you can hang on to my money uh, for another month and then, and then give it back to me later. That's never allowed in the policy. It's not addressed in the policy. It's something that was unilaterally added by the insured in an endorsement that my client never received and, quite frankly, was never sent to my client. Nobody ever sent this to my client, this endorsement. Um, and as to the premium payment, uh, it is very clear that at the time of the loss, my client was paying for insurance coverage of $1.378 million. Um, this was a renewal policy. This is important that it's a renewal policy because in the policy of insurance it says, you know, when you get the policy, yeah, we'll bind it and then we'll send you a bill and you're paying for coverage in the past. But what the policy says is that in a renewal policy, uh, you, at the date of renewal, you have to pay in advance. So what you are doing is paying for insurance in the future. Uh, when the policy was renewed in June of 2019, the insurer was paying for insurance for that next month. The next month, they're paying for the next month. The next month, they're paying for the next month. So in this case, the insurance company says, we changed the policy on April the 8th. Now, in the insurance policy, it says that they can change the electronic transfer with three days' notice. It was actually billed by the control of the insurance company, auto draft, controlled by the insurance company, on April the 13th. That's five days. They could have, on April the 8th, changed the amount that was withdrawn. But what they did is wait. And, what, and that's not allowed in the insurance policy. What they did 
was bill my client for insurance coverage of $1.3 million from to begin on April the 13th and to continue into May. So at the time this loss occurred, my client was paying for insurance of $1.3 million. And um, I can answer any questions now. I'd like to reserve the, the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Easley. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Butler? May it please the court, my name is Kara Butler and I represent um, Twin City Fire Insurance Company in this matter. As you're all aware, this is a clear modification of the contract, basically an insurance contract between the appellant um, had an office supply and then the appellee, in our case, Twin City Fire Insurance Company, to reduce the amount of the coverage from approximately $1.3 million to $450,000. And I think, as, we've, as I've heard um, the appellant's counsel talk, one of the primary issues in this case is the authority of the agent um, and whether that was actual authority or apparent authority. Um, and I believe in this case that both of those are present. Um, going to the actual authority here, as we've always already talked about, the undisputed material facts in this case are clear because we have very clear text messages in this matter. We also have very clear email in this matter. Um, and to give a little bit of background on the, the agent in this matter, it's Mr. Cole Shenandor. He works for Ott Insurance. That is an independent insurance agency that often tries to find the best coverage for their client. Here, Mr. Terry Bradshaw was a representative Hunton office, reached out to Colsha Nandor because he's a childhood friend of his son, asked him to get the best coverage for the best price, so it's very clear that he was the insured's agent in this matter. And, and quickly walking through the undisputed material facts in this matter that clearly show the intention for this um, contract to be reduced as of April 1st of 2020. Um, um, April 1st of 2020, Mr. Bradshaw emails Cole Shenandor. He says, please reduce the coverage actually to $250,000. Mr. Shenandor of our insurance takes that directive and goes to Twin, Twin City Fire Insurance to start to work with them on a reduction in the coverage. Twin City actually comes back and says, we cannot do $250,000. That's too low. They agree on to offer $450,000. And so then Twin City issues a quote. And in that quote, it explains that the coverage will be dropped effective for one of 2020 explains that there will be a return of the premium and issues that to Mr. Shenandor. Um, Mr. Shenandor at that time then emails that specific quote to Mr. Bradshaw, ask him if he wants, he says they will only reduce to 450,000. Do you want us to go forth? He says, yes, that will be more than enough. And there are no disputed material facts outside of those text messages that clearly show for him to reduce, to reduce the policy at that point. What, I ab think what about the, the PDF issue of uh, apparently it's not disputed that a PDF of endorsement was received, but that it couldn't be opened and, and therefore was not read and couldn't constitute your Honor, case law in Arkansas is very clear that if a party has the opportunity to examine a contract and at that moment they don't say anything, they go forward with it, then they can't later on say, I wasn't able to open that, I didn't see it, you're bound by that contract absent some sort of fraud or mistake, and that's not the case here. Um, 
And in fact, Mr. Bradshaw in those texts did not say back, I, I didn't see that, can you send that back? In fact, he just clearly said, yes, please go forward, that will be more than enough. And so, Your Honor, I think the fact that he had the opportunity to examine it at that moment, he didn't say, I can't open this or anything like that to give us any evidence that he did not examine it. He can't now use that argument to get out of the contract itself. Um, moving to the apparent authority, and I think clearly here there is actual authority for the um, endorsement to have been bound by the insured. But as we've also talked about, there's also um, apparent authority in this case. And here, Mr. Shenandoah, it's undisputed that he was clearly the agent of Hunt in office. Um, Arkansas law is clear that if, you, if it's usually whoever procures that person, and in this case, um, Mr. Bradshaw, operating on behalf of Hutton Office, requested that Mr. Shenandoah of all insurance be the person that went and got him insurance. It's been testified by both uh, Mr. Bradshaw and Mr. Shenandoah that basically all insurance could look at very many different coverages. They could go talk to other insurance companies, and his job was to find the best coverage for the best price, and that's what Mr. Shenandoah was doing in this case. In addition, um, Mr. Shenandoah here um, has testified that it was his intention to reduce the policy at that point. So he clearly says, here I, was, um, I wanted to reduce the policy at that point. Whenever I talked to Twin City, that was my intention. And thus, it's clear that his intention there was to reduce it. So even if there is some sort of disputed fact between the insured and the agent, which I do not think there is. I think there's clearly actual authority here. Then there's also this apparent authority argument that I believe supports the fact that Twin City only operated with ought insurance. Twin City never talked to the insured. Um, and so really all communications on behalf of Hutton Office were done via ought insurance and Twin City Fire in here. Um, there's nothing to dispute that fact. I do think that um, the appellant mentioned that he had spoken with Mr. Deffenball. I just want to make clear that Mr. Deffenball is in the claims portion of Twin City Fire. So during this underwriting provision where the endorsement is actually being effective here, he was not speaking with Mr. Deffenball. So that was later on, and Mr. Deffenball had no dealings with the actual endorsement himself. He just came in on the claim side. Um, so any really discussions with him is irrelevant to this matter. The, the, quote, le <clears throat> the quote letter, as I read it, proposes um, two possibilities. One is to reduce it effective... Uh, April 1st. April 1st. And then the other is to, to just, when we renew, lower it. What's the, what's the record show as to how, you know, I understand the, Mr. Bradshaw saying he couldn't open it. Um, what's the record show as to which of those was accepted and by whom? Correct. Um, so I think when you look at the emails in this case and then the quote itself, it's very clear that the primary focus here was the reduction as of 4-1, so the endorsement itself, how... I understand this quote letter is actually to say, here is what your policy will be considering um, the endorsement. And then moving forward to the renewal, if you continue that amount of time, then at the renewal point, then it will also drop. Um, and, and that is reflected in the emails as well, because it was very clear that 
Mr. Um, Shenandoah wanted to reduce this amount to 450000 moving forward. So okay, that I, I see your, your point. It's probably right. But what's the evidence that this was, okay, go ahead and do it? From the standpoint of Mr. Shenandoah or from Mr. Bradshaw? Whatever you Mr. Bradshaw. So and, and when you look at the, the text messages in full context, and I know there's some discussion about, well, I wanted to wait till it was vacant. Um, I think to, re, like, to argue against that point, it's very clear he reaches out on 4-1, and, and Mr. Shenandoah says, is this building still vacant? And Mr. Bradshaw responds and says, no, we're still operating it. Um, and it's very clear that Mr. Shenandoah operates under that assumption of 4-1 because when you look at the email correspondence between Mr. Shenandoah and Twin City Fire, they clearly discuss how this business is going to be used going I, forward. I understand that. Mr. Shenandoah um, solicits the quote, mm -hmm. right? But my question is, what's, where's the acceptance? Where, where is the, yes, okay, go ahead and do this, either from Shannon Dora or Bradshaw? Okay, sorry, Your Honor. Um, so for Mr. Bradshaw, he says, yes, move forward, 450000 will be more than enough. And so that is what we take as acceptance there. Did that there. occur after this quote came out? Correct. Okay. Yes, Your Honor. If you, if you read the text messages, Mr. Shenandoah sends the quote policy and then he says, with that, they are only wanting to do $450,000. Do you want me to move forward? Kind of paraphrasing. And he says, yes, that will be more than enough. And then he turns to a different reduction, which is not relevant here. So that's that authority. And then Mr. Shenandor, after receiving that quote, sending it to Mr. Bradshaw, getting that authority, he goes back and he tells Twin City Fire, please endorse the policy as quoted. And I think under Arkansas law, and if you look couch on entrance, it's very clear that endorsement is like a modification, modification of the contract. So by using that word, and, and Mr. Shenandor testified, by using that word endorse, it was my intention to reduce the policy effective um, for, for one. Judge Smith, I did want to quickly um, address your comment about the reduction in premium in this case. Um, going kind of back to the quote letter, in that quote letter it says um, the quote resulted in 532 of return premium, and that was not issued immediately because it has to go through the billing cycle. But what you can see is on April 22nd, before the loss, Twin City issues a bill for that next month, and it basically states endorsement 41 of 2020, and it shows the amount that has been reduced. To, to reflect that endorsement at that point. Um, in addition, it looks like on 420, and I know there's dispute on whether Mr. Bradshaw ever received this, but it's undisputed that on 420, the, the endorsement itself was sent to his agent. Um, and I think he testified that the typical policy is for them to automatically send that on, but it's clear that it was sent to the agent before the date of the loss. Um, and finally, turning to the point of delivery, as I think Judge Grunder acknowledged, um, under Arkansas law, it's not required for the insured to, to actually sign an endorsement unless it is a unilateral change. And the purpose of that is because we want to provide insured's notice. But here, Mr. Bradshaw and Hunt Office clearly had notice because he, in fact, and his agents were the one who requested this change. 
Um, that is all I have unless you have any final questions. If not, I'll ask that you affirm the judgment of the district court. And thank you. Thank you, Mr. Butler. Mr. Easley? Yes, Your Honor. I'd like to talk about this quote letter. Um, opposing counsel cited in her brief at page 14 the Neal versus Nationwide case to hold that when a party, quote, enters into a contract and has an opportunity to examine it, they cannot uh, thereafter say they didn't know what it contained. That's not what Neal says. Neal says very specifically, um, and I'll read it to the court, uh, one who signs a contract, signs, not enters, after an opportunity to examine it, cannot be heard to say that he or she did not know what it contained. The, the requirement of a signature has always been important in the law, and it is so here in interpreting this case and the application of Neal. Secondly, um, Arkansas law in the Moss case is very clear that a contract and a modification to a contract is not formed until the last action occurs. In this case, the last action was the return of the premiums. That did not occur until after the loss. This idea that, yeah, we sent a bill out on April the 24th, there's no proof that they ever sent that to the insurer. The insurer actually received it. There's no, there may be, excuse me, I misspoke. There may be proof that they sent it to the insured. There is no proof that the insured actually received it. The um, idea, and, and I'd like to, to take issue with one thing that, the, that my friend, and truly is my friend, Apolli said, um, that the endorsement was sent to the agent on April the 20th. I'd invite the court to see at the appendix, page 742, that's not exactly what Cole Scanandor says. He says that it was placed into a queue and that he had access to it, not that it was sent to him. So this endorsement, was it's not like it went out in an email or it went out in a, um, uh, by snail mail or any other. It was placed into a queue that he had access to. Um, it, again, never delivered to the insured. Um, as to the issue of the emails, um, none of the emails that are in the record um, uh, in none of the emails that are involved in the record was my client a party. Do you have any questions? I've got 30 seconds left. I see none. If your honors would allow me an indulgence uh, on January the 4th, uh, I welcome Michael Austin Easley into the world. I'd like to put that on the record that, that we're welcoming him and that we're very happy that he came. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Counsel, thank you both for your participation in argument before the court helping us uh, look through the issues in the matter, and we'll continue to study the record and render decision in due course. Thank you. Counsel may be excused. Madam Clerk.